Bible series. Last time, I gave you a quick overview of the book of Revelation to show its focus and that the subject of the book is truly the church. Uh, perhaps we haven't realized that before because we get back there and start reading of beasts and various things, but from the very beginning, uh, John addresses the church, and Christ talks about it in the first several chapters almost exclusively, if not exclusively, and then it is woven throughout the rest of the context of Revelation. And just as the rest of the Bible is written about Israel, both physical and spiritual, uh, and only mentions the world as it impacts and or conflicts with the church, the subject is God's chosen people. And the interaction then with the rest of the world is where the problems arise and the lack of contact with God Almighty. And the sermon before that, uh, I emphasize that the temple is spiritual. A physical temple does not mean anything. It has no spiritual value. Whoever might build it uh, in Jerusalem, such as the Jews, which everyone seems to anticipate, and I postulated that it might not be built there, uh, and if it does, it would have no spiritual value that the Jews really have no spiritual value in anything they do unless they are converted Jews who are part of the Church of God today. And I'm not trying to just knock the Jews. Uh, they were anti-God in terms of uh, substituting the traditions of men uh, in place of the law of God and the ways of God. And Christ condemned them for that very strongly. And then they became anti-Christ by rejecting and condemning and killing Christ and rejecting the New Testament. I don't use the word antichrist in the sense of the antichrist who will come at the very end of the age, but the word antichrist simply means against Christ. And they have been against Christ along with the rest of Israel. The main reason the Jews come into the spotlight is not because they're worse than the rest of Israel, but simply because they were put there as those to protect the scripture, and Christ himself came from Judah, uh, so they are in the limelight as leaders, and they did not breathe, lead the right way. But they have been concluded in unbelief, just like the rest of the tribes of Israel, as per Romans 11, as Paul stated. Their chance at salvation will come later, and only we who understand the truth have become spiritual Jews. And that was the whole point of what Paul was going through in the book of Hebrews to show those young Jewish converts that all of those things from the past, the physical tabernacle and all that had to, all that had to do with it or pertain to it, were only a shadow of better things to come, a covenant with better promises, a better high priest, uh, a better temple, and so on and so forth. I won't try to re-preach that, but just a little short reminder here at the beginning of what is important here at the end and what is not. Now we saw also in Matthew 24, and I think I'll turn there briefly, Matthew 24, uh, an end-time prophecy which we in the church have recognized, I guess, about the history of the end-time church uh, as being an end-time prophecy. He's talking about the gospel being preached in verse 14 as a witness to the world, and then the end will come. Herbert Armstrong did not do this. He died 17 years ago nearly, 
and uh, the end has not come. The end will come when the two witnesses finish preaching the gospel of the kingdom as a witness against all nations. Then the end will come. So he said, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. And I spent some time on that and showed that there may be an alternate uh, explanation to that which is traditional. And we'll examine that some more as we go along, so I'll not get back into it now. But what I came here for today is to show that that abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel is an end-time fulfillment. If it's in Matthew 24, it is an end-time fulfillment. It has nothing to do with Antiochus Epiphanes and what has happened in history. That was a temple which is way in the past, which no longer has any spiritual value and was torn down, as was the temple of Herod. And once that veil of the temple was rent in twain, a physical temple had no meaning because access was given clear to the back of the building as a physical building, and the Holy of Holies could be entered in by anyone until it was torn down. So it no longer had any value. But what I want us to see clearly is that Daniel is an end-time book and that it is spoken of here in a very much or very much an end-time passage, which is Matthew 24. It's speaking of the end of the world, as it says at the beginning of this chapter, the end of the age, just before the return of Christ. So we don't have to jump into our history books and find out that Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the sanctuary. Yes, he did. And yes, that was a partial and a minor fulfillment. But the last abomination will stand in the temple of God. Which temple you are? Not something that the Jews concoct and build, I've come to believe. That would have no meaning whatsoever. Now understand that there are at least two references in the book of Daniel to the latter days. Uh, One states, I think, in, I believe it's chapter 11, and we'll get to it eventually. I'm just quoting here extemporaneously at the moment. But it says, what will befall your people in the latter days? It's an end-time book mentioned twice as the latter days, and then he told Daniel to seal up the book until the time of the end. And, of course, the book of Daniel ends with the first resurrection. So it definitely is an end-time book. We need to understand that. It is not just a historical record, as the commentators tend to think. And they, they tend to get a little bit confused because they talk about these world-ruling empires, and then it jumps to the resurrection. And they can't seem to quite make the connection there. But I think that we can make the connection. And that is that the whole book has an end-time application beginning with chapter 1. Now, chapter 1 might seem like uh, just a historical record about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and so on. Uh, There is nice little stories of faith or whatever. But I'm here to tell you there's more to it than that. Now, the book of Daniel, in the prophecy itself, covers about 70 years, the period of Judah's captivity as a historical record, and then it it fast-forwards then to the empires that would follow through history, and then I think uh, 
settles on the end-time fulfillment of all of those pro prophecies. But the book itself is basically about that captivity of the Jews, which lasted approximately 70 years. And beyond that 70 years, when they were released, it looks forward to the return of Christ. Now, in conjunction with this, before we get there and start in chapter 1, I want us to understand that there is a 70 years that applies to the end-time church as well. Now, when Daniel quoted about the abomination of desolation and the 70 years, well, especially the 70 years I'm thinking of, not the abomination, but the 70 years, Daniel understood by reading books, that is, the book of Jeremiah, that it was talking about the abomination of desolation at the end. And that is brought forward by Christ in Matthew 24 to show that indeed that's what it was talking about. I don't think we could make a mistake on that. Now, let's go to Zechariah 1. Because I want to show you here, and I've been over this information before, but I think it's important to review it at this point. Zechariah 1, that there is a 70 years that applies specifically to the church. Now, I think we're all aware that the book of Haggai talks about Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant of the people being stirred up to rebuild the temple. We could not really have understood this until we saw this end-time temple destroyed before our very eyes. But it has been. That's almost completely destroyed now. It doesn't lack too much, and it will be. Not one stone left upon another. So we've seen that there is an application of Haggai and Zechariah to the end time. And I submit that the reason Haggai and Zechariah were written was specifically for that reason. In other words, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah coming out of Babylon to build a temple and ultimately to build back the walls of Jerusalem as a historical account was written in Ezra and Nehemiah. That's what they wrote about. Those were in the writings. But Haggai and Zechariah give account of the same story, but they are placed in the prophecies. In other words, You've got the historical account, and you have the prophetic account, that that which was done by Ezra and Nehemiah would be repeated in a prophetic sense, that these types go on, that temples are reenacted over and over again. So Haggai and Zechariah are end-time books. They're placed right in the middle of the minor prophets, which are end-time books, chapter after chapter, which deal with the end time. Joel is a good example to start with, talking about the day of the Lord. Uh, Zephaniah mentions the day of the Lord, chapter 1. All the way through, you find those references, uh, the return of Christ. Malachi talks about the return of Christ and what must be done before he returns. So the whole thing is about the end time. And Haggai and Zechariah are right in the middle of it. Now, go to Zechariah 4. We've done this before, but I want to make it very clear before we get into the 70 years who these people are. He's talking here, chapter 3 and 4, about Joshua and Zerubbabel. 
verse 13 of chapter 4, And he answered me and said, Know you not what these be? Speaking of these golden pipes and the candlesticks and so on. The very same language is Revelation 1 and 2. Uh, the seven eyes, the seven candlesticks, the seven spirits of the seven churches, and so on. It's very clearly related to Revelation 1 and the churches, which are then enumerated one by one in chapters 2 and 3. Cannot miss that connection. So he said, who, do these, who are these? And I said, no, my Lord, I don't know who they are. Verse 14, then said he, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, my Bible, in the margin, gives me a marginal reference of Revelation 11.4. doesn't give me any others. Do you know why it doesn't give me any others? There is no mention of these two anywhere else except Revelation 11.4. So let's go back to Revelation 11.4 and look at what it says. Well, let's start in verse 3. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth, that is humility. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. It's the only other reference. So it ties it to the book of Revelation. So Haggai and Zechariah are about the two witnesses in the remnant church that will be built. So this has to be an additional temple, a remnant temple, put together by those two leaders before they ever go to the world. They're told to measure the temple of God, the church first in verse 1, and the altar, and then the worship therein. And they were to forget about the court of the Gentiles, at least temporarily. Their first job was the church. So when you get into Haggai, Zechariah, and Daniel, which are essentially contemporaneous, having to do with the captivity just before it, during it, and just after it. You're talking about the church. Is that clear? These are prophetic. They're talking about the future, the near future, uh, that which is almost upon us. All right, with that background, then, I, I think that is undeniable. There's no way that you can... I mean, if the Bible refers to one other scripture... And that one of the scriptures in Revelation 11, if you let the Bible interpret itself, there can be no other meaning, can there? That's who this is talking about. Okay? So let's go back to Zechariah 1. If he's talking about the church in Zechariah 4, 3 and 4, then he's talking about the church in Zechariah 1 and 2. And very clearly in the book of Haggai, he is talking about the church there. Now, before I get into Zechariah, let me add one thing. Notice back in Haggai, uh, let's see, chapter 1, verse 2. Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts. He's speaking here to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. But you could just substitute. He's speaking here to the two witnesses. Okay? Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, saying, This people say, which people? God's people. Those who are part of the church, who have to do with, uh, ultimately, Zerubbabel and Joshua. The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So God is going to stir people up to build the house of God, and there will be some who say, it isn't time to do that. There will be those who say that. It's prophesied right here. 
Then came the word of the Eternal by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your paneled houses, and this house lie waste? Then he says to consider our ways. And he describes our circumstance now, both spiritually and physically in the world, financially. All right. I went back here for one reason, and that is to pick up basically this thread about the Lord's house. Is this talking about a physical temple that will be built? How do we define this? Do I give you my idea about what house this is? Or is there something that tells us what it is? If you would, turn to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. And here I want verse 15. Paul speaking to Timothy, But if I tarry long or wait long, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, now, what is the house of God? Paul defines it right here. How to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. That's what the house of God is. Paul interprets house of God from Haggai to mean the church of the living God. Now, there is a church called the living church of God. The emphasis there in that title is that they are living. Here the emphasis is God is living. Huge difference there. Revelation 3 talks about someone who would say or would have the name living, Church of God, but they are dead. I don't know necessarily who that refers to. I'm just saying that there is a difference in the name. You have a name that you are living, but you are dead. But here we have a church of the living God. I don't think we should miss the difference there. The pillar and ground of the truth. The Jews are not the pillar and ground of the truth. The church of the living God is. So... Paul says that when we go back to the prophecies, just as we saw scriptures about the prophets last week in Revelation, that we can call the house of God the church of the living God, or the congregation of the living God, better translated. All right, now let's go back to... Well, wait a minute, I want to give you one more on that. Hebrews 3, while we're back here. Hebrews 3, and here I want verse 6. Let's give it a little more emphasis. But Christ is a son over his own house. Here's New Testament language about the house. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? So it's the church of the living God, and we are the church of the living God. We are the temple of God, and we are the house of God. We're the people of God. So when he speaks of house back here in the prophecies, he's speaking of when? The end time. So the term house has to apply to the church of the living God. All right, now back to Zechariah 1. We'll get there eventually. I don't want to put my spin on this. I want to let the Bible define itself. And now, here in Zechariah 1... He's talking here in verse 12, 
Then the angel of the Eternal answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah? Now, we've also seen in Hebrews 12:22 and in various other places, as well as Galatians 6:16 and 4:26, I think it is, that Jerusalem means the church, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what we are and are to be. And this is an in-kind time context, so that application applies. Against which you have had indignation these three score and ten years. That's seventy years. Now, there was a captivity in physical Israel for seventy years. More or less, it was, some of them went early, and, but God officially places the seventy-year captivity at seventy years through Jeremiah and through Daniel. But here we're talking about a 70 years that has to do with what? A prophecy of the end time. A prophecy that blends into and comes out of a prophecy about the two witnesses and the end time church. Remember Zechariah began writing in the middle of when Haggai wrote. Right in the middle of Haggai's prophecy, Zechariah started. And then he delayed a while and then finished it. So these two are intricately entwined together. And they are also contemporary with Daniel, which means that the end-time prophecy of Daniel also pertains to the end-time prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. Once you understand who Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant are, there can be no other conclusion. So we had that 70 years back then, then you had the beginning of the Church of the Living God on Pentecost in 30 or 31 A.D. And how long did that last? Approximately 70 years. When Paul wrote, I mean Paul, when John wrote in the late 90s, the church was approximately 70 years old and it soon thereafter disappeared. Mr. Armstrong always said by 100 A.D. it had disappeared from the scene. began in 30 A.D. probably and ended by 100 A.D., 70 years. Is this coincidence? <laughs> Is it merely coincidence that this end-time church began in 1933, and right now, at the beginning of, or the end of 2003, it has lasted almost 70 years? And what condition do we find it in? It has almost disappeared. Hard to find the true church of the living God today. A lot of splinters going off into paganism, going off into doctrines of their own, but very few are remaining faithful to the real truth. Very few. And here in Zechariah, lo and behold, we find 70 years in an end-time church context. So, very obviously, if Daniel applied it to the end time, not to Antiochus, and Christ did himself in Matthew 24, and what higher authority can he go to than that? And we find it back here in the story of the end-time church and the two witnesses. I'm beginning to scratch my head and wonder if there's any way this doesn't apply to us now. I think it has to. What other conclusion could you come to with that kind of internal evidence? The abomination comes at the end. All these are end-time prophecies, and they say so. All through the Minor Prophets, it talks about the latter days of the end and the day of the Lord, as I said. So, 
as we go into the book of Daniel, it's, under, it's good to understand the setting and what comes out of this book, or what period of time, or time frame and period of time that it covers. And it's approximately 70 years. We find ourselves here at about the end of 70 years. Now, let's get a little bit of the history and, and background. Uh, Daniel means, God is my judge. The L on the end stands for God. And Dan, we know from understanding the prophecy about Dan, bit at his uh, brother's heels. In other words, he was a judge of his brothers. That's in a negative sense, but Daniel is not in a negative sense. It means that I, Daniel, am judged by God. And what is written here comes under God's judgment, and God judged it good and recorded it to be written for us. Uh, we have to be careful, very careful, in saying something is not of God. If it's in this word, it's been purified seven times, according to the psalm. And if it is in there, God wanted it in there. It doesn't matter whether Daniel wrote it, Jeremiah wrote it, Paul wrote it, Luke wrote it, or whoever wrote it. God wanted it in there. It was his word. He approved it. He accepted it. He canonized it, caused it to be put in his word. There is nothing properly translated that should not be in the Word of God. There are a few insertions that mankind stuck in there from time to time, but they can be ferreted out. But if God put it in there and had his people canonize it in there, God backs it and corroborates it in every way. And he does Daniel here by telling him at the end of the book, don't worry, you'll rise at the end of the days. And Daniel is listed among the faithful in Hebrews 11 as one who quenched the, or stopped the mouths of lions. So his judgment is good. And when, it, when his name meant God is my judge, that is a very positive thing that is put here. And he was called a man greatly beloved later on in the book, as we'll see when we get to that point. His name also is a derivative, a derivative of David, just like Maria and and uh, all the names that sound like Mary are derivatives of Mary. Now, he began writing circa, that means close to, plus or minus, 607 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. Now, the scholars and the archaeologists don't know on a lot of these dates for sure the exact time. And we need to understand that there was not a calendar that went all the way back there uh, that you could just hang events on. Uh, what the historians have done, and the archaeologists, is they've simply taken the time of Christ and counted backward, and then tried to fix events to those that backward counting. So that the time that we refer to, it's just a, a point of reference, really, so that we can get an idea of when things happened. It's a countdown, much like a space shuttle going off, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, you know, down to the time of Christ. So it's a reference that they have artificially put on there to try to date things. That is why we don't know when creation took place. They have sort of different ones assigned different dates to the creation. God has hidden it. And they've tried to put together the genealogical records of the kings, both in the Bible and in uh, archaeology, to try to determine what these actual dates are. So it's 
it's educated guessing, let's say. And you'll find that with historians and archaeologists and the Bible commentators, they often disagree. They don't know. So when I say circa 607, uh, it means approximately. Could have been before, could have been after. Some dates they seem to have fixed more, like when uh, the fall of Babylon came, they've pretty well stated that's 539 B.C., approximately uh, 68 to 70 years later. Probably 68 uh, would be more like it, because in the second year of Darius, two years later, uh, the Jews are released. So, to go and, and build the temple. But roughly speaking, there were 70 years there, and that's what this is referring to. So, the book of Daniel is about 607 B.C., uh, some say 605, when Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, but <laughs> in that general time frame. Now, Cyrus the Persian conquered Babylon in approximately 539 B.C., and he reigned for nine years when he died in 530. So, the historical uh, fulfillment of Daniel began at that point. From the end of the rule of Babylon, the head of gold, the, the beginning empire of the, of the four that are mentioned, Babylon was the first, uh, was taken over by the Persians, and actually the Medo-Persian Empire, the combination of the two. And the Jews were released by Cyrus, and that is recorded that that would happen back in Isaiah, which was written roughly a hundred years before that, I, I forget, uh, 70, 80, 100 years before that. Uh, Isaiah had said Cyrus would be God's servant and would, would do this. And probably Daniel, once Cyrus came into power and the Babylonian Empire was defunct, uh, went to Cyrus, or maybe uh, Ezra did, uh, but at least somehow that prophecy was related to Cyrus that he would do such a thing. And it probably really impressed the guy that something written in a Hebrew tongue many, many decades before would be about him. Wow, that'll puff you up on it. I mean, what could he do? He had to do it. It makes me wonder sometimes when I read these accounts of Cyrus and later Darius, uh, if at some time in the end time, the church may not be aided and abetted and helped in some way by someone in a governmental position. don't know that. That's speculation. It's just a question in my mind because of the fact that, that these Gentile kings did help. So... I don't know, just put that out there as something to throw on the back burner and, and watch for and see if there is anything to it. I don't know. But it, but it is in here. So, uh, they began to build the temple soon after they were released from Babylon, went back there to get the job done. They got into it, and then Ezra 4 tells us that they were delayed, that the enemies came, and it was stopped. Some commentators will tell you 14 years. Most seem to indicate 17 years. Maybe it means nothing, but it is interesting to me that Herbert Armstrong died in 1986. 17 years later is 2003. Uh, could this be important in some way? I don't know. Uh, all these events, by the way, did, were uh, measured out over quite a few years. And the end-time fulfillments are compacted, won't be as long. 
So the 17 years might not mean anything either, but that's another thought, just to put a question mark there and, and wonder if there might be some importance or validity to it. I don't know. Not predicting anything, just a curious question. So Cyrus had taken over the Babylonian Empire, snuck in by night when Belshazzar was having his feast in chapter 4, I think it was, and uh, took Babylon, destroyed it. And then you had a Darius there who was a co-regent. He was actually uh, Cyrus' uncle, older than Cyrus. And he was made a co-regent, basically, or governor of Babylon by Cyrus. So there was somewhat of a co-regency there. And uh, the, the years of Darius are mentioned in some places. Uh, so... The Medes and Persians ruled. This, this Darius is called Gubaru. There's a name for you. Tack it on your next grandson or kid. Uh, we're dealing with two Cyruses, apparently, from what all the historians and archaeologists seem to indicate. The Darius that uh, commanded that the temple work be restarted 17 years later, after it had begun, is apparently another Darius. His name was Histapes, Darius Histapes. So uh, when it says the first year of Darius or the second year of Darius, you have to be a little careful which Darius you're talking about because one left the scene and the other came in. There was a Cambyses, or however you say it, was the uh, son of Cyrus who had conquered Babylon. He ruled a short while, and then a Darius took over. So it's two different Dariuses here. And it can be confusing uh, if you're not careful. So they began to build the temple. They were delayed 17 years, apparently. And then Darius uh, Histapes uh, told them to go ahead. And that was in the first year of his reign, of the second Darius there. And was approximately 521 B.C. So you, you had the 70 years of captivity, the release the beginning of the temple, a 17-year uh, drought or dearth of building, then it began again and was finished in the sixth year of Darius, that Darius. So it took four years to finish it from that time. So a 70-year captivity, a release, uh, a desolate Jerusalem sitting there, and that would end, and the temple would be rebuilt. And Daniel came to this understanding almost as the 70 years ended, according to his own statement there in Daniel 9-2. began to realize everything that was happening. He read by books and understand what Jeremiah's 70 years meant at that point. Up until then, apparently, he hadn't understood how long that captivity would be. He read Jeremiah, and suddenly he realized, oh, it's going to be 70 years. And it was almost over by then. So the work was finished in the sixth year of Darius, according to Ezra, four years later on the third of Adar. That's in Ezra 6.15 if you want to jot it down. So this covers, oh, approximately 90 years altogether. Now, Daniel had gone to Babylon in the captivity as a very young person, as a child. They're called children there, probably teenagers. We'll get to that in a little bit. So we have Daniel, Ezariah, or Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah, uh, essentially contemporaneous. And Ezekiel also 
Ezekiel was taken captive in 597 B.C., according to the historians. Uh, that's why he wrote from the river Kibar. There are several rivers there that are in the Babylonian area. And he began his ministry about five years later, and after being taken captive. So uh, he preached then for 22 years till approximately 571 B.C. And he mentions Daniel. He was there in the captivity. He saw what was happening with Daniel, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He saw the, uh, the lion's den. He saw the, the fiery furnace. He knew about those things, and he wrote about righteous Daniel. So understand that these prophecies were close together, and these men knew of each other if they didn't outright know each other. Very possible they even knew each other. So the captivity was already in full swing when Ezekiel wrote. Let's plug a thought in there. If the captivity was already in the middle of it, already in full swing, was Ezekiel writing about that captivity entirely and only? Or was he writing a prophecy about a captivity to come? I think both. He was writing about Daniel there in that captivity, but he was also writing about the captivity to come. Something in the future. Now, when I say captivity, we think in terms of uh, Israel and Egypt making bricks. We think in terms of these Jewish uh, people being in captivity in Babylon, serving the king, actual physical, literal slaves. And when I speak of us today being in the captivity of Babylon, and many, many scriptures, end-time scriptures like Revelation 18, say, come out of her, my people. That's an end-time prophecy for now. And I think we've always recognized that, but we only applied it in a spiritual sense. Don't think like they think. Uh, don't act like they act, more or less. Uh, but that's as far as we took it. But we recognize that the book of Revelation, man, you get on to Revelation 18, you've got to be talking about the end time, don't you? Nothing else. So what kind of captivity are we in? If this applies to the church, as I postulated, or I think proved, in Zechariah 1, 2, 3, and 4, and Revelation 11, if we're in a captivity, what kind of captivity is it? Well, the church began about 1931, and it's lasted now to 2002, nearly 70 years. Have we been free to do anything we wanted? I submit that we have not. We're in the land of the free, the home of the brave, so-called, here in the United States. Some people have not had it nearly so easy as we have in that sense. But I tell you, we are captive whether we knew it or not. How hard has it been to divorce ourselves from the ways of this world, from its financial system, from its educational system, so-called, from its dollar bill, from its economic, well, I already said financial and economic, same thing, its foods, its entertainment, its culture, its way of life, its symbols, its holidays. I recently read a write-up about a lot of holidays, not just Christmas and Easter. 
and uh, some very good points were made there about how some of those that we think are innocuous really have pagan roots. And uh, that bears some more study, too. But we have been enslaved by this system, and it has been very, very hard to break loose. And in fact, we tended to read a lot of Revelation 3 down to and including the Philadelphia era. And there we stopped. We emphasized that. We read that often. Once in a while, we would read on down about those Laodiceans and wonder who in the world that could be. And then, when the breakup of the church started, people began to look around and say, well, it must be them. That is, anyone but us. <laughs> Dangerous, tragic mistake to make. Because those who were saying that, and are saying it to this day, have also been scattered. Big or little, they've still been spewed and scattered. And as I've said before, what's the difference between a big piece of spew and a little piece of spew? One sticks to the wall, one falls to the floor, but they're all the same smell before God. Did we get ourselves out of the grip of Babylon? No. Our relationship with God was very poor, and our relationship with the world was very strong. We were ensconced in it, enmeshed in it, woven into it, didn't get out of it, and we're still in it to this day. Some people are working pretty hard now. Some people in this group are working pretty hard to get rid of this world's entertainment, to get rid of its uh, economic uh, slavery, to get out of its foods, to get out of all the things that it has to do with. But we're finding it difficult, aren't we? We didn't realize how chained we were. Isaiah 52 talks about it. He says, you were laying on the ground. You were letting them walk all over you. Sit up. Don't let this happen. I mean, church organizations today go to places like Orlando and Disney World for a feast. They go to Branson, Missouri for a feast of tabernacles. Not everyone, but many, many, many of them, and probably the majority of the people there, hasten out of services to go to the entertainment things of this world. Are we there to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, or are we there to be entertained? People don't like these words sometimes because they figure, well, this is my vacation. No, it is not your vacation. It is the feast of the Lord God Almighty is what it is. But so many are still chained to this system and its way of living and the things that entertain it. Yes, we've been in captivity for 70 years, and we're struggling to sit up, some of us. Many are still just going along with it. Many went right in back into the Babylonian religions of Nimrod and Semiramis, sun worship, Sunday worship. Went right back to Christmas and Easter and the crosses and crucifixes and the little fish on the back of their car which they think is the fishy of uh, Christ's miracle, I suppose, but really is the god Dagon. On and on it goes. And slowly, we're drifting further and further as people from God. Right back into the captivity of the world. And I'll tell you what, it takes a lot of effort and energy to resist that. Not only resist it and remain where you are, 
but to go the other direction. To get completely away from it. Oh yeah, we've been in captivity. But we're going to be released to build the latter temple fairly soon, I think. I'm not going to try to set a date, but as I've said before, if the church was organized in 1931, that might be the time that God, or 1933, excuse me, October 21st, Mr. Armstrong said the Philadelphia era began when the church was organized. 2003 is 70 years later, end of the year, October, from the time it actually was incorporated and began. Will this time have meaning? I don't know. Look around the world. Look at the condition of the world. Could it all begin to come to crashing down, the financial part of it, by then? In some ways, I'd be surprised if it doesn't come down before then, just the way things have been lately. It might be some time after. The gospel began to be preached in 1934. The plain truth began in January of 34. Uh, maybe God started to count in 1934. So maybe it'll be 2004. I don't know. But I don't see any dates after that that would seem to have any significance where the time might have started. I mean, it was a significant date when, he, when Nebuchadnezzar began to besiege Jerusalem. But I wasn't on the average day at the office. He was there to take those people captive. He actually went there three times. He defeated them. But there was a rebellion. He defeated them again. And there was another rebellion. And this time he came in and hauled them off. And the Judean Empire then ended, basically, at that point. He just put governors over them up to that point. So it was not a... I guess there's the end of the tape already. So there was a significant date... Uh, when they were besieged and eventually destroyed. So I think that there has to be a significant date here as well. I mean, you look at the New Testament church. Wasn't it a significant date when that church was formed? He said, wait here. You'll be given power later. And then 50 days later at Pentecost, they received power. And it was a very, very dramatic beginning. So I suspect that the, end of the, the beginning of the 70 years had to have been a significant time in Mr. Armstrong's life, and it will have to be a significant time when the 70 years ends. Uh, something will begin to happen. Just how fast and in what way remains to be seen, but we're going to see that. So, the book of Haggai is an end-time book. Now, let's go to Daniel. Well, I told you we'd get there. And let's, let's start into this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and his name had been changed. He had been Eliakim before, and I won't turn back there, but Second Chronicles 34 through 36 gives you a, a record of history of Jehoiakim, who had been Eliakim. Eliakim is also mentioned in Isaiah, and that bears some scrutiny someday as well uh, in an end-time prophecy such as Isaiah. But anyway, it was the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Jerusalem and besieged it. So this is the particular siege of Jerusalem that Daniel talks about. Uh, God gives it 70 years officially. And the Eternal gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Uh, interestingly here, they take away part of the church part of the temple. 
the vessels of the temple. And is there any doubt that the end-time Babylon is going to take away some of the vessels of God, some of us? We can see the connection here, or the, the, the type and the symbolism. This is at the beginning of that captivity, and I, you can even go back in history and read the autobiography, and you find that there were evil men there who were trying to destroy what Mr. Armstrong was building. They took away people. They tried to destroy him. So if you go back to the beginning, the types are the same, and the types at the end, we'll find, are also very much the same. And carried them in the land of Shinar, that's on the plain of Babylon. And interestingly enough, Zechariah 5 talks about uh, a woman being picked up in the basket and taken and planted in Shinar. I've talked about that in the uh, Minor Prophets on that particular chapter, so you can go back and review that if you want more detail. I don't have time to go into it again here, but I just wanted to point out the connection again. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. <clears throat> And the king spoke to Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, not just any kids that they happened to find running around uh, among the Jews, but certain children, special children, the king's seed, the princes, the trained ones, the ones that might have a little royal background, because he had use for them in his kingdom uh, and in the house of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science. So these had been kids in the Jewish court who had been taught what the average kid probably had not been taught. That's the kind they wanted. They understood science. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, boy, we're in a scientific age today. Is there any tie in there? And such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace. A lot of people simply don't have the training or the manners or the knowledge uh, to stand in a king's house. Most of us would be all thumbs. You know, which fork, which knife, which glass, which plate, which anything you want to name would be all confused. But these kids had been taught, in whom they might teach the learning in the tongue of the Chaldeans, bright kids in other words. Now, before we go on, I want to go back to verse 3 and talk about the eunuchs here. What's this all about? Do you know? Were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego actually made into eunuchs, that is, castrated, their testicles cut off? Uh, the commentators have various things to say about that, and being Victorian uh, King James people and background for the most part, they try to say no. Some of them say probably so, but they like to say no because, you know, why would you do that to these Jewish kids? Well, let's understand, these were Gentile kingdoms, and that was commonly done. If you had the wives and the concubines of the king, and you had people there, men, doing, serving and about the court and part of the government and various things and so on, you simply didn't have to worry about your women if you castrated them all. And that was commonly done. No problem. Just do it. Well, let's go back to Isaiah 39. Isaiah 39. And see a prophecy here that Isaiah writes. Isaiah 39, beginning in verse 5. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Eternal of hosts. 
Behold, the days come that all that is in your house and that which your fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Eternal. And they began taking the vessels out of the temple at that point, and that erosion continued. And of your sons that shall issue from thee, that is, Hezekiah's sons, which you shall beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Eternal which you have spoken. He said, Moreover, for therefore shall be peace and truth in my days. Interesting, Hezekiah was generally known as a righteous king, but he did have his problems. And the fact that his sons would be castrated eunuchs didn't bother him too much as long as he had peace during his days. After he was dead, he didn't seem to care what happened to his sons. <laughs> How's that for an attitude? He seemed to accept that, and there was a relief to him that everything would be okay during the rest of his life, the extra 15 years he'd been given. Now let's go to 2 Kings 20. 2 Kings 20. And here I want verse 12. At that time... Barodak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. This was the time God added the 10, 15 years after the sundial went back 10 years, or 15 years, excuse me, or 10 degrees. He gave him 15 years. I'll spit it up. And Hezekiah hearkened to them and showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, and all the house of his armor, and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Now what if a bunch of burglars knocked on your door and uh, you invited them in and showed them where all the jewels were, where the safe was, what the combination was, and all this, and then, you know, fed them tea and then sent them out. <laughs> well, should it be any surprise that they come back and loot your house the first time you leave or when they think that they can come in and kill you or whatever? But that's what Hezekiah was doing. God wasn't happy with it. Then came Isaiah the prophet to the king Hezekiah and said to him, What said these men, and from whence came they to you? Hezekiah said, They're come from a far country, even from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, All the things that are in my house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. And, I, and Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Eternal. Behold, the day is come that all that is in your house and that which your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Eternal. Are we to be separate from Babylon? Are we to show them everything we have, everything we are? Are we to give them an advantage in any way? They're against us. They're there to destroy us. Babylon is Satan's system begun with Adam and Eve and carried through Nimrod and brought down to today. And if your sons that shall issue from you, which you shall beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego eunuchs? I expect they were. The traditions of the Jews and their history is that uh, Daniel was uh, a descendant of Hezekiah. And this wasn't too much longer, a little less than a hundred years uh, transpired from the time that Hezekiah had his 15 years added until Daniel was well underway. That'll be interesting a little bit later when we get to times and seasons. 
All right. We have here boys who have probably been made eunuchs. Let's go to Matthew 19. Well, let's go, no, let's not leave it. Let's go back to Isaiah 56 first. Here's a scripture back here, which kind of puzzled me over the years, and I didn't really grasp it, but I think I may understand it now. Isaiah 56. Thus says the Eternal, Keep you judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come. This isn't millennial. His salvation hasn't come yet. Okay? His salvation is near to come. It's an end-time prophecy. And my righteousness to be revealed. When is his righteousness revealed? Revelation tells us the first resurrection and the mystery of God will be ended. Righteousness will be at that time. So there's an awful lot of Isaiah that people have thought was just millennial that isn't millennial at all, but has to do with the end-time church. Now, some of it bleeds over into physical Israel and what happens to them in the millennium, but this is speaking before that happens. Blessed is the man that does this, and the Son of Man that lays hold in it, that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it, and keeping his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that has joined himself to the Eternal speak, saying, The Eternal has utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. How many eunuchs do you know? I mean, you got a bunch of friends that are eunuchs? That have been operated on? I doubt if any of you know anybody, unless they had cancer, that has been made a eunuch. But I think I know a lot of eunuchs. I'll explain. For thus says the Eternal, to the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. I wonder who this chapter is talking about. If we don't know any eunuchs, and here's a chapter in Isaiah 56 that talk about the eunuchs keeping the Sabbath. Now, how could that apply to today? What does that mean? All right, now let's go to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, we'll pick this back up again over here. But let's let Christ shed some light on this. Matthew 19. Um, he's talking here in this chapter about divorce and remarriage and uh, putting a wife away for any cause. And God is very, very much against divorce. He's very much against divorce and remarriage. But it was pretty common back there because the Jews had departed from God's way and they were divorcing and remarrying for any cause. The Let's say the, the permission that God or Christ gives for divorce are very, very limited. It is not something that he desires. It is not something that was his original intent it's something because of sin that sometimes happens, but the parameters within which God will allow that are very narrow. And these people had been taught, his disciples, that it was a lot broader than it actually was. So he tells them, because of the hardness of their heart, God had allowed more divorce and remarriage or multiple marriage or whatever uh, than he originally intended. He said from the beginning it was not so, verse 8. So he said, if you put away your wife, except it be for porneia, that is, sexual sins, and they shall marry another, commits adultery, 
and whoso marries her that is put away does commit adultery. His disciples had trouble with that. Probably some of them had been divorced and remarried. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. His di his, that was what was going on in that culture and society. His disciples say to him, if the case of a man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. I mean, if you can't dump her, why marry her? <laughs> now, there's an attitude for you. There's an attitude for that would lead toward a successful marriage, I would really think, you know. But he said to them, all men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. Not everybody can handle that. For there are some eunuchs, he begins to explain, which were so born from their mother's womb, unable to copulate, unable to have a sexual relationship. There are some eunuchs which were made, the eunuchs were made eunuchs of men, that is, castrated. And there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Some people refrain for a purpose, for the kingdom of heaven. Paul was talking about that somewhat in 1 Corinthians 7. At that point, he thought that the end was very near. He talks about the present distress and time is short in that chapter, verse 39. So he said it'd be better to be like him, unmarried, and not to marry. It'd be better to focus on the kingdom of God, to get your priorities straight, not to focus on sex and marriage. But he said if you're burning and unable to contain yourself, you just simply can't keep your focus right, he says then you can go ahead and marry, but it would be better if you didn't. Now, as Frank said last week, he did change that later on when he came to a greater understanding, that is, that time would go on. He thought Christ would return in his own lifetime at that point, so he was issuing that statement at that time, and it was canonized on purpose, because it is written for us upon whom the ends of the world have come. Matthew 24 says it's the time to stop having babies. Because if you are pregnant or give suck, you're going to be in terrible shape at the end. And the same with marriage. He said a woman tends to think of her husband instead of Christ her husband, if she's married. Uh, it's easy to get our focus on the physical and off the spiritual. We've got to keep our focus right. So becoming a eunuch spiritually could be a good thing, couldn't it? Might help you toward the kingdom of God. All right, let's go back to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. Even to them, verse 5, the eunuchs that keep the Sabbaths, will I give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. That would have to be brides of Christ. Uh, what, what name is better? God yourself. You'll become God. So this is speaking of people that are when? First resurrection. Those who come in the millennium and great white throne judgment will be sons and daughters. The ones that come before will have a higher name, a higher position throughout all eternity. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the eternal. This reminds you of the language of Paul where first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. That salvation was opened there in Romans 11 to the south to uh, the Jew, but he said the Gentiles could be grafted in. So, not just of Israel, it's, it's predicted clear back here, but the Gentile also. And to love the name of the Eternal, to be his servants, everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it and takes hold of my covenant. 
This is an end-time prophecy, so the New Covenant is the one we take hold of. It's the only one that offers a position higher than sons and daughters. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon my altar. Our prayers are our living sacrifice. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. It's going to start and spread and eventually be to all people, but it's going to start with the first fruits. All right. Let's use this analogy now. Eunuchs from what? What are we not to have concourse and intercourse with? This world. The ways of this world. We become eunuchs. We do not consort with Babylon. She is called a woman. Revelation 18, 17, through there. That's a woman we're supposed to leave alone. We're supposed to remove ourselves Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and of her plagues. We are not to have any concourse with Babylon. We become spiritual eunuchs from this world. They had been made physical eunuchs from the women of Babylon, from the women in the king's court, wives and concubines. We withdraw ourselves from this world. Who are the eunuchs who keep the Sabbath? Well, the church basically is the only people on earth that even keep the Sabbath in the right way. Some other groups do have the Sabbath and basically worship it. It's only a doctrine. It's only one commandment. It's their big one. But to us, it's just one of God's commandments that we keep. However, it is a test commandment. And I, I've felt for a long time that the calendar here at the end would be a line in the sand. Uh, for the church. And perhaps now I'm beginning to understand a little bit more of why and how it is a line in the sand. Think back to Mr. Armstrong's autobiography and the fact that he was challenged on the Sabbath by his wife and he spent six months studying that whole thing out. And he was trying to prove it wrong. He didn't want to keep it whatsoever. He was going to prove that woman wrong. That was his goal and purpose, avowedly so. And after studying so long, he proved she was right. Then he had a decision to make, didn't he? Would he accept it or reject it? And I believe that had he rejected that, God would have rejected him. He also used that, that situation with the guy who had the healing, who rejected the Sabbath, and the gift of healing was taken away. So at the basis of God using Herbert Armstrong to begin the end time chapter of the church was the Sabbath. It's always been the Test Commandment. Now here, almost 70 years later, we have another test. What is it about? It's about the Sabbaths. Not the weekly Sabbath so much at the moment, but the annual Sabbaths. But they are part of the Sabbath package, aren't they? Leviticus 23 mentions the weekly Sabbath and the annual Sabbaths. So they're part of the package. And this has become a raging debate in the church today. Some people are studying it. Some people are denying it. Some people are just leaving it alone. But could it be important? Is it important to keep God's days when he says to keep them? If you can postpone a piece of trumpets by a day, two days, why can't you just postpone the Sabbath by one day? You know, Sunday's only one day later. It's more convenient for a lot of people. 
So it's the exact same logic. I think it will become a very, very important line in the sand before this is all over. And if we reject keeping his holy days on the right days, we may also be rejected. Now it's going to become a big test. The weekly Sabbath is also going to be a big test on the horizon. That woman Babylon that we need to withdraw from and not have any intercourse with, to use that analogy, is going to require that we keep Sunday. Mark of the Beast. Sunday worship. And if we reject God's Sabbath and keep Sunday to preserve our physical life, we shall surely lose our eternal life. Might preserve the physical life for a very short while, but lose eternity. It's still very much a test commandment, both with the holy days and coming soon again with the, the weekly Sabbath. Now let's go to James 4. James 4. And explore some scriptures here. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? He's speaking here, James is, to the scattered uh, 12 tribes, scattered abroad, as he says in verse, chapter 1 of verse 1, or verse 1 of chapter 1. Uh, he's writing to Israel, but he's writing to those of Israel who are converted, those who are in the church. Where do you get the wars and fightings? Among yourselves. We have some problems now and then in this end-time age of the church, but it's nothing new, nothing to be necessarily spooked about. It's something to be remedied. All right, where do they come from? You lust and have not. We're breaking the laws of God, lust and covetousness. He's speaking there, I think, monetarily in particular. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. You try to get what you want in the wrong ways instead of going to your Father in heaven. You try to get it the worldly way, i.e., the Babylonian way, the satanic way. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. You're filled with covetousness, with selfishness, wanting what someone else has, or wanting to compete with someone else. The spirit of competition is the spirit of Satan. Competition is embraced by this world. But being competitive is Satan's way. Being humble and meek and thinking of someone else first is God's way. Boy, this world has to win, doesn't it? Why do we have to win, brethren, in everything we do? Pride, vanity, lust. And it leads to contention and strife and difficulty. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not... But the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Interesting he uses adulterers and adulteresses there. Because sex is used throughout the Bible. That greatest form of intimacy between husband and wife that should be a wonderful thing, once abused and misused, becomes a heinous sin. So God uses it to talk about righteousness here. He uses it to talk about 
whether we're friends of God or friends of the world. So, are we friends of the great harlot, Babylon? Do we consort with her? Do we think like her, act like her, live in her house, do her thing? Are we friends with that or friends of God? Do we make ourselves units by withdrawing? And here again, the analogy is sexual. Withdrawing from the world. It means in every way. But he uses that particular analogy. Because we have been intimately involved with this world. Our very innermost thoughts and feelings and emotions and, and loves have been of this world. We love its entertainment. We love its dollars. We love its way. We love its foods. We love the American way, which has its roots in Babylon. We have to withdraw. We have to make ourselves eunuchs for the kingdom, not consorting with it in any way or being friends with it in any form. Let's back this up in John 15. John 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Or will. The world, for the most part, doesn't even know us right now. We have to become prominent. At some point, we will be known on the world stage. We will get our 15 minutes of fame, as they say. It'll be a little longer than 15 minutes, but we're going to be on the stage and we're going to be hated of this world, that is, if the world can tell the difference between us and them. How do they know we're different? How can they tell? Do we think differently, talk differently, react differently? Or do we still act an awful lot like them? Are our tongues still enslaved to this world? Have we withdrawn them? Do we make comments on airplanes and in supermarkets and so on that tend to make them think we're one of the boys, that we're like them. We like to fit in, don't we? We like to be liked. Do we stand up for it, what we believe? I can remember being instructed when I went to someone's door back in the 60s to introduce myself as a representative of Ambassador College, not to mention the church. There was a quote-unquote leading evangelist who was superintendent of ministers at the time, who I suppose had a fear of persecution, had read that we're going to be persecuted. And therefore, we had unlisted phone numbers as ministers, church didn't have a phone number, and we disguised ourselves as education, educators in terms of a college. Were we trying to cozy up to the world and be accepted of the world, hide from the world, or were we not? Were we a little bit ashamed of who we were, or just scared of persecution, or a little of both? Because if you told them you were part of the Worldwide Church of God, if they knew what it was, they in some cases knew what it stood for, and they didn't like it. Or... If they ask you what you believe, and you told them about the Sabbath and the Holy Days and the Trinity and a few things, that is that you didn't follow the Trinity or believe it, and Christmas and Easter, then you were on their blacklist. 
Yeah, we were trying to sort of cozy up to the world so they wouldn't hate us. Wrong, wrong. We don't need to be obnoxious about it, but we should not be ashamed of what we believe. And if people ask us, we should humbly and meekly, but straightforwardly, tell them. And above all, set an example for them. An example that shows that we're different than they are. They don't even recognize the difference. They're not going to hate us. We've trained ourselves to react in such a way to be liked. Not good. Matthew 6, verse 24. Matthew 6, verse 24. Have we withdrawn from the world or have we not? Have we made ourselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God or have we not? Yeah, I know a lot of eunuchs. Should be the men and the women here who have withdrawn from any concourse, intercourse, connection with the world, that is, in being like they are, enjoying the things that they enjoy, and being a part of them in that way. We like to think of ourselves as separate, but we don't act that way too often. See? It's lip service. It's just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Gave lip service to God and did what they wanted. Are we any different, brethren? Do we say we're the called out first fruits of God and then partake of the things of this world? A eunuch doesn't partake at all. That's why he uses that analogy. He can't. He won't. Impossible. And we have to come with that steely resolve so that it is impossible for us to have any concourse with this world. To remove ourselves from it. Matthew 6, verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That is, money, unrighteously used, uh, the system, that is money, the economic way, the, uh, the get way, the I'll enrich myself. God says, trust him. Then we sit and try to build our 401k. I got news for you. Your 401k is going to disappear. Maybe it's coming to the point that isn't as much news as it would have been six months ago or two years ago, because a lot of people are seeing it disappear right now. You can't depend on this system. You've got to depend on God. Let's see one more. First John 2. First John 2. And here I want verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. We are not to love the things that are in the culture that we find around us. That means all aspects of it, any part of it, we are not to love. Anything that is in this world, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He loves the world instead. He says he loves God, but he serves the world. He lives like the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. We should not have pride in any form. Our culture teaches us that we ought to have pride. Self-pride. Be proud of our children, be proud of our job, be proud of our house, be proud of our car, be proud of our looks, be proud of our whatever. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. 
He hates pride. Intellectual pride, spiritual pride, you name it. He hates it. It's not of the Father, it's of the world. The world passes away in the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever, ever. Okay. We've got to withdraw from the thinking and acting and ways of this world. Let's understand something here. I think it's important as a sidelight, and I'll finish up with this because I don't have time to get into the next section anyway, but understand that the whole reproductive system that God gave mankind, man and woman, together, is a very intimate relationship. It's one that God created. It's one that he designed with his own hands, with his own emotions, with his own feelings, because we are created in the image of God. God is not a mannequin. Man, I mean man himself, not woman, is shaped like God in every way. And very often, that very intimacy, that very part of the creation of our bodies is used by God to depict the human-to-God process because he instituted it to be the most intimate thing that a man and woman or human beings can experience. That is the sexual relationship in a marriage that leads to the production of children. And you see this used throughout the Bible. We're called children. We talk about childbirth and, and giving birth to Christ in uh, Revelation 12 and all in Micah 4, all through the Bible. God uses that analogy of begettal. you got begettal all the way through the New Testament, don't you? And being born into the kingdom of God after growing in the womb of the church. You're born into the kingdom of God. He uses that reproductive uh, analogy throughout the Bible. I mean it is from Genesis 1 all the way through. And it's important that we understand that. Now, some have trouble with it because they were abused as children, because they were taught a Victorian way of approach, if that's dirty and filthy. Catholic children are taught, or the girls especially, that their bodies are evil and foul, and uh, that sex is wrong, but you, you have to do it once in a while to have a kid, but other than that, you shouldn't. We're taught all kinds of things in this world, touch not, taste not, handle not. And if we've been abused as children, or we've been abused by husbands or boyfriends, or we've gone through a lot of marriages, or we've committed a lot of adultery or fornication or whatever, it destroys emotion, it destroys our view of what God made to be beautiful and wonderful, and then we have trouble understanding the analogies that God uses in the Bible. So understand that if you have problems with some of these analogies, like eunuchs, uh, it's probably because of some of your teaching or experiences that were wrong experiences or teachings. The same is true when you get into the Song of Songs. I didn't get anything out of that from the world, from its commentaries or its uh, theologians or whatever. I got it from the Bible. I came to see that myself from the Bible itself because that's what the Bible talks about. Let's understand the New Testament in this light. Go to Matthew 13. 
Matthew 13. And here I want verse 37. He answered and said to them, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The word here for seed is sperma. The sperm of God. The translators have called it the seed of God. And when it's talking about, this, I mean, uh, the seed of man, the seed of Abraham through the New Testament, or the seed of David, the word sperma is used. The sperm of David. The sperm of Abraham. When it's referring to God, the Father, it is the sperm of God. We are begotten of God with the sperm of God. Now that is pretty intimate. How intimate can you get? When it's speaking of trees and the seed of plants, it uses a different word. I think it was spora, something like that, from which once we get the word spore. Spores off the tree. But sperma is the word used here, number 4690 in Strong's Concordance. It means it comes from sperma, sperm. And it says the good sperm here is Jesus Christ. Christ was called the sperm of God. He uses a sexual analogy to refer to Jesus Christ, his son. First uh, John 3, First John 3. Here I have verse 9. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. We won't argue begotten and born here through all of these. All I want to focus on here is the seed that remains in him. He's the seed of God, and the word here again is 4690, sperma. So he says in so many words that we are the sperm of God, planted in our minds, in our hearts, and placed within the body of Christ, the church, as he sees fit, 1 Corinthians 12, to grow, to overcome, and ultimately to be born into his kingdom. So when God planted his spirit in your mind, by his analogy, not mine, he said, I planted my sperm in you. Can you get any clearer? Galatians 3. Maybe so. I don't know how you get clearer than that, but let's read another scripture. Galatians. Uh, here I want verse 3, I mean chapter 3, verse 16. Galatians 3, 16. Now to Abraham and his seed, sperma again, where the promise is made, he says not, and to seeds, or spermatozoa, as of many, that is of one, and to your seed, which is Christ. Jesus Christ is the sperm of God, or began that way, planted in Mary's womb. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serves the law, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come, the sperma of God, Jesus Christ, should come to whom the promise was made. Verse 29, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's sperm, and heirs according to the promise. So we're God's sperm, and we're Abraham's sperm. <coughs> Revelation 12. I just picked out a few. 
It's all through there. Revelation 12, verse 17. And the dragon was wrathful with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her sperma, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I don't think you could get any clearer. That is the analogy that God uses. We are to give birth to Christ. He is giving, he begat us, we are growing in the womb of the church, and we will be born into the kingdom of God. That is the analogy he uses throughout, and that fits. So I don't know why anyone would have any problem with the Song of Songs being a story about Jesus Christ and his bride. They say, well, that intimacy that's shown there couldn't be. Well, man, how do you get any more intimate than these scriptures we just read and the words that God himself used? And that analogy of, of husband and wife and bride is throughout the entire Bible. So when we get to this scripture here about the eunuchs, it all fits in. No problem. We withdraw ourselves. We make ourselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God, as Christ said some men do. And we are the men and women who do it. We withdraw from this world. We have no concourse, no intercourse with it, no intimacy with it. We don't think like they think. We don't act like they act. We withdraw. We are not friends of them in any way. Or we are not friends of God. We have to make that choice. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had some choices to make. They were probably made eunuchs, not by choice. I doubt any young teenage boy would like to be strapped down and have his manhood cut off. That just doesn't appeal. But in this analogy of being captives of Babylon, it happened, not just as an analogy, but it happened physically to those fellows. But Christ makes it a spiritual analogy, and he uses it both in Matthew and back in Isaiah 56. So we saw the context of Isaiah 56 referring to those who would be part of the kingdom of God as firstfruits. And they are the eunuchs who keep the Sabbath. Spiritual eunuchs, not made of men. We don't know any eunuchs today, probably in the church, who are made that way of men, except, let's say, as I said, cancer or something. And they might have been made eunuchs for that purpose. But just normally, we don't see that in our society today, in our culture. But God uses it to describe the culture of the church at the end time here. So, when we get into the book of Daniel, we begin to see the spiritual analogies that are here from the very beginning, right at the first. And we're going to see that carry on throughout the entire book. And only when we begin to understand the keys of prophecy and that Jerusalem and Zion and the church and all of these things are the same, one and the same, speaking 